All right, so a little different tonight, but it goes along with what we've been doing. So on Wednesday night, we've been kind of supplementing what's happening on Sunday morning as we're journeying through the whole of Scripture, looking at the family of God and the covenants of God that he's made with man. And something that I wanted to hit on last Wednesday that we ran out of time for is what is called spear sovereignty. Um, And really it gets down to to God-ordained government and jurisdictions. And this is important because you see this unfold as you walk through Scripture. It starts, uh, it starts really right at the beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve in a couple different ways. So Adam is what we call a federal head. He's a covenant representative because he represents all of mankind in God's dealings with humanity. But he also represents his own household, right? So... He gives an account for what's going on uh, far more than Eve does, right? Because he is the one who's supposed to be leading, protecting, guiding, serving, loving Eve. And he allows her to fall under the sway of the evil one when he should have protected her from such things. Um, So he's representing all of humanity, but he's also representing his own household. He's the leader of his family. And we see that carry on throughout Scripture. So this idea of leadership, and especially of male headship, it exists before the fall of mankind, right? So it's not a product of sin. It's how God has designed things. Um, And we see that uh, throughout God's design, whether it's uh, hierarchy and patriarchy, uh, whether it's uh, male elder headship and um, male pastors and, and things like this within the church and then male leadership in the home um, and, and government. But as you walk through, you go from the Edemic covenant, God's covenant with Adam. Then you go into the Noahic covenant and God's covenant with Noah. Uh, when Noah is given this covenant, God very clearly establishes a standard for justice, right? So he tells him, If man sheds another man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Right? So there's you a a biblical warrant for the death penalty, essentially. Um, And he says, because man was created in the image of God. So really, it's not even so much focused on the man himself, but the fact that God is due worship from that man. Man is created in the image of God to glorify God and to enjoy him forever And when man is snuffed out, that is essentially robbing God of a worshiper who would be magnifying his glory. And so even the the punishment for murder and the banning of murder, which is a part of God's second tablet of the law that you... We haven't got to that point yet, but when we get to Exodus and Moses is given the Ten Commandments, you have two tablets. If you've ever seen... uh, um, the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston, right? You've got, you got two tablets, and on the first one is the first four commandments. And then the, the second one, you have the last six commandments. And Charleston Heston with his very, you know, layered hair is there and, and <laughs> let my people go. But the, um, on the second tablet, you have essentially the commandments that deal with how to love your neighbor as yourself. And on the first tablet, you have the first four commandments that have to deal with how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so what you see when God gives this command to Noah and and says, essentially, this is what justice is going to look like 
we're not going to murder here. And if you do, you will pay the price with your own life. You see that commandment, that's a second tablet law commandment, do not murder, rooted in the first tablet of the law that deals with how to rightly worship God. Because God says, the reason I'm telling you this is because man is created in my image. Right? So they're directly connected. Right? The law works together. But what you see happening there is justice being laid out clearly, which assumes... That justice will be upheld. And as time unfolds, you begin to see kings and leaders. And uh, by the time you get to the Abrahamic covenant, now there's pharaohs and there's kings. Uh, And I I skipped over the passage this past Sunday, even though I really wanted to hit it. The passage with, with Melchizedek. But you have essentially this meeting of all these kings. And there was this big battle where uh, Abraham battles all these other armies and kings and, and comes out on top. And the king of Sodom comes to meet Abraham. And Abraham's like, I ain't having nothing to do with you. But then the king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, comes. And Abraham honors him and even tithes to him. And Hebrews is going to say, well, that's because Melchizedek was a type of Christ. And just as Abraham tithed to Christ then, basically so shall we, or so should we, and we should honor Christ as a priesthood of the order, or a priest from the priesthood of uh, Melchizedek, because Melchizedek was a priest king, and so is Jesus, right? And so he's not like a Levitical priest, he's a priest king. And all that to say, you clearly see that there are governments established and civil authority, right? You have kings. You have rules in place. You have justice in place. So even with the Noahic covenant, you see Noah has a family that he's in charge of. He's the head of. He's the head of his household, which is why everybody in his household gets to get on the ark, even though God says Noah's the only righteous man walking the earth at that time. So the earth gets so bad that God's going to wipe out all of humanity. But because of Noah's faith, and Noah's righteousness, his whole household comes into the ark with him. And so because of Noah's leadership over his household, his whole household essentially enters into covenant with God because of Noah's position with God. And then Noah acts as the head of his household very quickly after the flood when Ham enters into sin and essentially breaks the fifth commandment, not honoring his father. So Noah decides to become a, uh, an owner of a vineyard, right? And he, uh, he gets into making wine and he realizes real quick, like apparently he's very good at making wine because he drinks too much and, and he's not only passed out drunk, but he's naked and passed out drunk. So we don't get a lot of details there. There's a reason why I didn't bring that into my sermon. It's kind of messy and weird. But what happens real quickly is it's, it's very clear that Ham, in some way, is disrespecting and dishonoring his father, right? He goes, he sees his father in this naked, intoxicated state, and he goes to his brothers, and he, and he essentially is like, come look at what dad's doing. Look at this mess, right? And his brothers honor their father. They won't even look at him in that state because they don't want to dishonor him. They don't want to shame him. And so they walk backwards with something to cover him with so that he's not laying there naked and ashamed, but has his honor kept. And so you see 
Shem and Japheth doing the right thing and upholding the fifth commandment. But you see Ham dishonoring his father and dishonoring the Lord because he's breaking God's law in doing that. And Noah, when he figures out what happens, responds by calling down covenant curses upon Ham and expelling him from his family. And Noah's right to do it. He has the jurisdiction to do it because he's the leader of his household. Um, and so you see this idea of spear sovereignty developing, that you have kings and governors and magistrates, and you have uh, fathers and mothers. I mean, and that's rooted in God's law right there. But really, in the fifth commandment, all authority is rooted in honor your mother and father. Peter's going to tell us to honor all the authority over us. Right? And that's rooted in that fifth commandment idea. But, and then when you get to the New Testament, you see clearly church government and church authority. But that's there in the old as well with the priests and the temple, uh, the temple guards and all these things. So, the reason I lay this out is because covenant theology is representative theology. Right? You have Adam who is our representative of all humanity. Uh, you have Noah who is a representative of humanity at that time and a representative of his family. You have Abraham, who's a representative of his whole household, which is why when God enters into covenant with Abraham, he brings his whole household, even to the point of his servants and everything, into covenant with him. Right? So it's not just his bloodline. It's all kinds of people that are connected with him. And he is the representative authority. And that's how God works. God deals with the high priest on the day of atonement in, um, in the temple. And right, the high priest has got to make sure he's got everything just right and that he's did everything according to God's instruction. And he's still kind of worried he didn't. So when he's going into the Holy of Holies, he's got a string tied to him or a rope tied to him just in case he drops dead. They can pull him out. But he's also got a bell tied to him so they can listen and say, is he not moving in there? Oh, man, he's dead. Reel him in, you know, because he did something wrong. But he's there as a representative of the people. Right. And that that's how God works. And that's how our government works. Right? This is why America is called the federal government. It's a covenantal government where we elect officials to represent us. Right, Because we can't all go to the White House, although it might be better than what we got going on now. I don't know. But, you, <laughs> you, but we have these elected officials. Right, So come November, we will elect, Lord willing, a new official to represent us in the White House. Uh, but that, that's how that works, right? You have fathers and mothers, you have governors, you have elders and deacons, you have all these things and all these different spears representing uh, each of these covenantal aspects. So I want us to walk through this a little bit and just see how this works so that as I continue walking through the covenants on Sunday morning, you'll have this foundation built in your mind that, okay, this is how God works. He deals with representatives. He deals with representative government. And each of these governments has their own jurisdiction. Um, all of them are meant to be under the lordship of Christ. So if you look on your paper, you got a quote. Question. Yeah, go ahead. When, when God approached Abraham, when he first approached him, he said, leave your family and go. Leave your father's house, yeah. So, so I've always been under the impression that Abraham should have gone on his own versus taking his family. Uh-huh. Where, where am I wrong in that interpretation? 
Wait. Yeah. It's contrary to what you're teaching, and I'm not arguing it. I'm just. Yeah, no, I, I think he calls him to leave his father's house, which he does. He doesn't take his father with him, but he takes some family with him, and God seems okay with it. And God, in fact, enters into covenant with them when he enters in with, with Abraham, and they all get circumcised as well, right? Those who are connected to his household. Now, Lot splits off later, but the uh, those who are directly connected to him enter into that covenant with him, and all of his household included servants and all these other things. He's already married at that point, right? Um, I don't think he meets Sarah afterward. I think she was there with him in the beginning. So I think it's a clear, like, leave and cleave. You're meant to leave your father's house. Not that everybody connected with him couldn't come. Uh, but you might have some point with Lot. I'm not sure. I, I'd have to study that further. Mm-hmm. However, God is kind and gracious to Lot. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. And Abraham... No, no, and Abraham, by all means, was not perfect. So, yeah, he could have uh, he could have been in the wrong on some of that, but he's still representing his whole household, which is right. So, a different Abraham, Abraham Kuyper, at the top of your page there, he said, "There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine." Right. So, there's nothing outside of Jesus's jurisdiction. He's Lord of all. Whether you're talking individuals, whether you're talking families, whether you're talking churches, or whether you're talking governments, it all belongs to him. And what you see within God's word is God has an expectation that in each of these areas, his law, his morality will be upheld and that people will live in submission to him. Now, how that morality is meant to be upheld plays out differently in each sphere of sovereignty. So, in the home, you have family government. Uh, you have the Ministry of Health, Education, Welfare that the home is responsible for, and we'll, we'll go over that in a second. But the home, the family, is given the power of the rod, right? So Proverbs, whoever spares the rod hates the son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. That's the idea. It's discipline, right? It doesn't, it's not just saying, in the, rod, in the home, we beat people, right? That's, that's not the idea. The idea is we discipline our children, And as we're going to look at in just a second, we're meant to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And a husband, especially a father, has a covenant responsibility to do that. So just did Stephen and Heather's wedding. I spent a lot more time with my charge to Stephen than I did to Heather. Because that's how the scripture works. Because he's meant to be the head of the household. And he's meant to lead his household in obedience to Christ. Right? And to wash his wife in the water of the word, which is the same idea as raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? In in God's ways. Um, So a husband has a responsibility to do that. A father has a responsibility to do that and will answer to God for how he does, right? That has nothing to do with your salvation, right? You're not saved if you do a good job and lost if you do a bad job. But it does have to do with pleasing the Lord, uh, possible rewards later, things like that. Um, and if you are condemned, I suppose you could be all the more condemned than be in a further corner of hell or so. I don't know, but I don't want to know. I don't want to go there. <laughs> but basically, God uh, rewards those who walk in righteousness and blesses those who walk in righteousness. And greater curses fall upon those who walk in disobedience. Um, but we're saved because of Christ, but we're still meant to walk in obedience and glorify God uh, by 
obeying his word. So you have that in the home, in the family government, where you have heads that will answer for how they lead. Church, uh, church government, same way. You have the ministry of the word and sacrament with the power of the keys of the kingdom. We'll go over that in a second, but essentially that's tied to church membership, church discipline, baptism, the Lord's Supper, preaching of the word. Um, and elders will give an account for how they lead. In Hebrews thirteen seventeen, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Who are we going to give an account to? To God, right? Not only do I have to account for how I lead my household, not only do I have to account for how I live my life, but I have to account for the souls under my care here as your pastor. And Eli's an elder. He has to do the same. There's a, a greater weight with me as the main preacher and teacher and the pastor, but it's there nonetheless for, for all church leadership because we are a representative of this church to God, right? You, you have in Revelation these letters to seven churches, seven lampstands, to the seven angels over the churches. The angels are messengers, right? They're essentially pastors and, and heads over those churches. That's, that's how it works. You've got elder representation dealing with God, and, and we are, we are going to be accountable to not only how we shepherd your souls, but how we preach and teach God's word, which is a part of shepherding your souls. So that's a covenant relationship between the leadership of any given church and God. Has nothing to do with our salvation, however, we could walk in great sin and fall in greater condemnation because of it. But it's, it's a covenant reality nonetheless. So I, I, I tend to think that when we think about covenant with God, we usually only think salvation. Right? That I'm in a covenant with God and I'm covered by the blood of Jesus and I'm good. Well, that can be totally true. And yet you still have these other covenant realities that you may be doing well in or poor in. Um, and then the other aspect is civil government, the ministry of justice with the power of the sword. And what we see there in Romans 13, which there's no way we're going to have time to look at tonight, and I couldn't fit it on the board. Um, in Romans 13, they have the power of the sword, right? So that's tied to that Noahic covenant and justice, right? If a man sheds another man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Well, God's very clear that you have to have two or three witnesses. You have to have all these things in place before someone can be accounted guilty. Our idea and our justice system, right, innocent until proven guilty, that's a biblical idea. That's good. Um, so when he's saying, by man shall your blood be shed, he doesn't mean that anybody and everybody can then enact justice, pick up the sword. As we see developed throughout Scripture, the government has the power of the sword, right? Governors... Uh, presidents, pharaohs, kings, dictators, whatever, and they are meant to uphold these laws and these statutes and these these um, these principles that uphold justice. And we'll see that later in Romans 13. But they do it as a servant of God. So it says in Romans 13, rulers are not, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, the instrument of justice. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So 
every civil magistrate, whether it's a judge, whether it's a police officer, whether it's a governor, whether it's the president of the United States or whatever, they are servants of God meant to lead in line with God's will, especially God's moral will that we see in God's moral law. Right? So right now, as I'm watching, I'm not trying to get political. I'm just telling you what's going on. By the way, saying Jesus is Lord is a political statement. But the, um, but as I'm watching things going on with uh, the Republican, uh, potential Republican nominees, and then what's going on with Biden, um, you have Trump, who looks like he's going to be the guy, and he's saying one thing and appealing to kind of conservative right. And then you have Biden leading um, his charge tied to what he's calling women's rights. But what he means is a right to an abortion. Right. As he's laying that out, he makes it very clear that what he's running on the basis of his campaign is I'm going to undo what the Supreme Court just did and get women a right to what he calls health care. But he means an abortion, which goes directly against God's moral law. Right? So he's basing his campaign on immorality. Um, and he's going to answer to God for that. And, and that, that's, that's the thing. And I'm by no means saying Trump is a perfect person either. But, and he's going to answer for how he's led in the past and if he leads again. But that expectation, regardless, I don't care what Biden believes. In God's sovereignty, he's placed in that position and he has a responsibility to submit to the lordship of Christ in that position. Right? That's the idea of spear sovereignty. So each spear has a jurisdiction. You have the home with the rod. You have the church with the keys to the kingdom. And you have the state with the sword. But all of those authorities and uh, ways of doing discipline and the like are under the lordship of Christ and must submit to his law and his word. Right? Every husband, I don't care if you're an atheist, you're going to answer to God for how you lead your wife, right? Or if a wife is the head of her household, because there is no husband, right? That happens. Then same way, you're going to be responsible for how you lead your children, how you lead your household. Um, This is how God works, and that's how the covenant theology works. Well, let's begin to break this down a little bit. First, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What do you see in that verse? What, what's Paul getting at in that verse? And how is this tied to what I'm talking about if you, if you see it? What's that? Right, so gospel proclamation is going to be tied to this. Just the gospel or anything else from God's word? All of God's word, word, absolutely. Which, if you want to summarize all of God's word, you can do it like this. Law and gospel. You have commands, you have promises, and everything else is tied to those things in one way or another. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Right, So opinions about God or opinions against God that aren't biblical, right? That That's, he's talking about destroying them. But part of the way he destroys them is taking every thought captive to obey, that sounds like law, Christ. 
What's it mean to take every thought captive? So control input, and then you talked about doing what's right, which is kind of control output. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes things just pop in my mind, and I'm like, where did that come from? Where did that wretched, horrible thought come from? Right, so that's not so much controlling the input. However, if I'm honest, that input was put in there at some point, right? That wicked thought entered my brain because of something I exposed myself to, heard, saw, or did in the past. Uh, The way I often talk about this is just as we're commanded by God to write his word on our heart, whether we like it or not, we write sin on our heart. It would be so nice if we could forget sin the way God does, right? He says, your sin is as far as the east is from the west and I remember them no more. Like God... Can I get a little of that action? Like, I, I don't want to remember my sin anymore, but it's there. Eric? So, in my individuals when I was counseling and therapy, like, I'd be obsessive. I had a lot of intrusive thoughts. I'd be driving in the car with the kids, and I just, before medication, praise God, I'm at therapy. I'm fine now. But I'd be driving in the car with the kids, and I think, if I just off of the bridge and took them with me, they'd all, mm. we'd all be with Jesus, and it'd be fine. Mm. Right. So when <laughs> when I spoke with my therapist about it, I was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to deal with this. She's a Christian. She told me, you know, this is what taking every thought captive in a way means is you have the thought and then you go, Huh, oh, that was crazy. God says not to do that. We're gonna do right. this other thing right. and actively mm-hmm. tell myself what the truth is about the situation and move my train of thought over here back to where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very clear example of by taking your thoughts captive, you're taking your life captive, right? Because your thoughts are directly influencing your behavior. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or where do we find the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect in God's word, right? So we renew our mind through the word of God. We take every thought captive by weighing it against God's word, right? Is, Is this right? Well, what determines what is right? God, God's law, God's word. So let's, let's weigh it according to that and then act accordingly. Right? So grab a hold of that, that thought. So the command to take every thought captive is really the command to take every area of life captive. Everything you say, everything you do, it all belongs to Christ. Right? So this is stressing the Kuiper point. Right? 
Christ looks at every area of human existence and says, Mine. It belongs to me. I am Lord of all. I am the king. You bring it all in submission to me. Now, to Erica's point earlier, you do that rightly through the gospel. Right? So, Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, the scribes and Pharisees are really, really good at outwardly obeying God's law, right? They, they are the holy, roly, holy, holy rollies, holy rollers. It rhymes. <laughs> I can talk faster than I can think. Sorry. Uh, they are the holy rollers, the Bible thumpers of their day. And yet, Jesus would say, though they seek to honor me with their lips, their hearts are far from me, right? And that's what he means by having a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, is he doesn't want mere outward conformity to his law, though he wants that. But he wants it from the inside out. He wants it from a heart that has been transformed by the gospel and now beats for Jesus. Right? So he wants you to love the Lord, and that's why you obey God. And that's what he says, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And really keeping his commandments is loving him. The commands are summarized with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Part of the way you show you love God is by loving your neighbor. Um, But this is what we're called to do. So to take every thought captive to obey Christ is directly tied to the law and the gospel. It's not mere outward obedience. It's grace-driven gospel transformation, not mere behavior modification. However, sometimes you don't feel like doing the right thing. Sometimes your thoughts aren't telling you to do the right thing. You take it captive anyway, and you do the next right thing anyway, because your feelings don't determine what truth is. Your feelings don't determine what what is right. God's word does. So it's not merely, if I feel this way, I do it. God wants you to delight in him. He wants you to desire him and to delight to obey his word. But even when you don't, you obey his word. Right? So God's law is good for everybody. Because even if somebody says, well, I don't really love God and I don't really love my neighbor. So I don't have any desire to follow God's law. Okay. Well, you still don't get to murder. Sorry. Like, I know you really had your hopes set on that. But no, you know, you might not love the Lord, but it's still not okay, right? And so that's God, there's three purposes. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm overflowing out of my book that I'm writing. I, I spent all day writing today. But there's three purposes of God's law. You have the purpose to restrain evil, right? This is what God's law does for everybody. It, it gives a standard of justice and restrains evil, right? So it keeps people from murdering each other. Because they don't want the death penalty, right? They could care less about honoring God, but they don't really want to die. So they don't do that, especially in Texas. But then there's also the idea of the law as a tutor, right? It's what leads us to Christ. It shows us that we are sinners who do not perfectly keep God's law, and we need a Savior. We have failed to glorify God the way we should. And then the third use, though, is it shows us what obedience to Christ looks like as those who are in Christ. Right, so now that we know Jesus and have been saved, we're called to follow Jesus. Well, what kind of life did Jesus live? One that was perfectly obedient to God's law. 
So if you're wanting to know, well, what should my life look like? Well, it's a life that ought to be obedient to God's law and God's word. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. And that's what Paul's saying here. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every area of your life and submit it to King Jesus. That's what you're called to do. That's what the Christian life looks like. The Christian's different from the world because he's doing it joyfully. She's doing it joyfully. She's doing it because God has so loved her that she delights to do it. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. That word love is a summary of the law. Right? The law summed up in one word is love, says Paul. And love, explained, means love God, love your neighbor. And the gospel is an image of love as well. Right? Jesus commands us in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you are to love one another as I have loved you. So he puts a gospel spin on the law. He says, don't just love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor sacrificially, like I did. I laid down my life for you. So all of that is tied to this call to obedience. And this call to obedience plays out, one, for individuals, but then in these three spheres of life. So family government first. Family government is the ministry of health, education, and welfare, where the power of the rod is given. So you have a few passages on your paper there. Um, one, First Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Right? So if you don't work, you don't eat, that type of thing. So you see the general idea of, of welfare and health tied up in that. You have to provide and, and help for these basic needs. So providing is going to include shelter, food, things like that. That's the general welfare. But then in Ephesians 6, which I want us to really walk through, and we'll probably be here the rest of the night, uh, he lays out really the beauty of education and the spiritual welfare as well as the general welfare is all tied into this because you're really helping somebody be a true human being through this. So he says, starting in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the book of Ephesians is a letter written to a church in Ephesus. But what he says is to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's what he says at the beginning. Saints is the word for holy, for the holy ones, for those who have been set apart by God for God. Those people in Ephesus, he's writing to them. Interesting enough, he's writing to the whole family, we see, even the children. So he says, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What do you see in verse 1 there? Right. Law. Do you see any gospel here? In the Lord. Well done. So this is the gospel idea. Now, in the Lord can mean a few things. Uh, it can mean uh, obey your parents insofar as they're in line with God. Right? So don't, don't obey your parents when they call you to sin. That's never right for anybody. Same way, wives are in submission to their husbands, but not against God's will. Right? They don't follow their husbands into sin. 
Um, husbands, you know, definitely don't do what Adam did and fall your wife into sin, like, right, over and over again. So we do everything in the Lord in submission to the Lord ultimately. But in the Lord also implies union with Christ, right? If anybody is in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for them. Romans 8.1. Um, so it implies a, a gospel aspect to it that they are in covenant with God. And so they should want to do this out of that First John 4.19 mentality. We love because he first loved us. But that's no excuse not to do it, right? Uh, well, I didn't feel like honoring my parents today. God's going to say, I don't care what you felt like. <laughs> do it anyway. Um, if Cain tells God, you know, I'm not really feeling it. think I'm going to kill Abel. I'm just a little frustrated today, having a bad day. It's not an excuse. It doesn't matter. Obedience is the call no matter what. But children are being directly addressed in a letter that's addressed to saints. Just saying. Uh, we don't know what all age is there, but children's a pretty generic term for children. From infants to, to uh, adolescents, all of it's there. But he calls them to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right. And then he quotes the fifth commandment or fifth commandment, six, which commandment? Now I'm doubting myself. One of the commandments, five, five, that's right. Yeah. Which, yeah, I need somebody with a photographic memory. Uh, I, and I have them down, but not, you know, not under pressure. You are looking at me like with too much pressure. See, <laughs> what's the word for children in their original language? Like what is it? I knew you were going to ask me that, and I didn't have it. But give me two seconds, I'll tell you. I'm guessing it, it has like a bigger Yep. Let's see. I just wanted to stop your I appreciate that. Yeah, throw me off. No big deal. All right. That which is begotten, a child of either sex. Um, Yeah, posterity doesn't give a specific age, right? Doesn't say, it, but it's something that can be used of infants as well, as well as older. It goes both ways. All right. So we don't know exactly what age we're dealing with, but it's at least, oh, they're old enough to hear the instruction. We know that much, right? And listen to it. Um, go ahead, Steve. Could it also be talking about the rank and file Christians, like obeying your parents in the Lord, like elders and... Sure, the, the, and that's what I was getting at earlier with uh, the fifth commandment has that in it, right? Respect the authority over you in general, right? So, um, you know, the pastor here before me led me to the Lord. Right? He was my father in the Lord. And so there was a respect and a submission there that I had beyond just him being my pastor, but because he also was the one who discipled me and led me in the Lord, things like that. So certainly true nonetheless, right? So spiritual children. Uh, absolutely applies, but it, he's in the context here directly addressing the family. So I think it's dealing with quite literally physical descendants. Okay. So honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So just notice he's directly applying the 10 commandments to Christians. There are people today who think the 10 commandments don't apply to Christians. That's in part what my book is about as well. They do apply. And I would argue they apply to everybody everywhere all the time. But especially Christians, right? Christians don't get out of this. 
people mistake this because they think the Ten Commandments were a way of salvation, and they were never meant to be that. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, the law has those three purposes that I laid out earlier. So, honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Any questions, comments, concerns on that? Pretty straightforward. What do you think? Yeah, right. So this one's got this promise directly tied to it. Why do you think that promise is there? Is this like Joe Olstein prosperity gospel? <laughs> what's what's going on? <laughs> And, and not only eternal life, but like your physical life will be blessed as well. You're not going to die. Right. If you've got a wise family leading you, right? Proverbs also says there's a way that seems right to man and its end leads to death, right? Well, if you have a wise dad or a wise mom leading you in general wisdom, like it's going to go better for you. Um, interesting enough, my oldest son, who's 18 and, you know, just so bent that he can't wait to be a husband and a father. Uh, he's, we're putting together a list of here's all the things I need to learn before I go out on my own. And uh, Chris Kelm and others have helped me add to that list. But things like, uh, like down to foraging, like how do I go and live off the land if I'm just stranded somewhere? Right? Like we've never had to do that. You know, like it was like Brookshire's is less than a mile from our house. But just in case. And I'm just like, man, yeah, let's do it, man. Let's go. Like, let's go to the mountains. We'll figure it out. You know, I'd love to teach you that. And so that type of stuff, that's general wisdom. That's like, you'll, it'll go well for you in the land. You know, uh, it, it works well to know how to. So this is sad because I did not have a good childhood. Um, you know who taught me how to cook? My mother-in-law. You know who taught me how to do some work on my car? My mother-in-law. You know how to, who taught me how to do like handyman work around my house? My mother-in-law, right? Yeah, she's awesome. Like, there's a reason why I was like, yeah, she can live with us. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, I'm honoring my mother-in-law. Yeah, like, but, but I mean, now that was years ago. This wasn't like recently. She taught me that. We got, we got married at 19. But the. <laughs> And we started dating when we were 18. And I remember being sent to go help your brother out who was broken down on the side of the road. So at that point, she had already passed the baton to me. And I had to go do that. But she, she helped me learn how to do that stuff. But that's what, like, you know, general wisdom is great. But then especially if you're being raised in a Christian household, how much more so will blessing follow that wisdom, right? And that, that's the general idea. So you've got, a, you've got a physical blessing, but you also have an eternal spiritual blessing that's tied there if, verse 4, is followed. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction or nurture and admonition of the Lord. What does that mean? 
Trust and obey. It seems like somebody wrote an email about that recently. <laughs> mm, right. What's interesting is uh, that first word for discipline, or it can be translated nurture, it's also translated culture sometimes. And that's the general idea. You're raising them in the culture of Christ. So, of the Lord, tied to in the Lord, right? It's, it's a covenant household. It's, it's uh, what Joshua said, right? As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. This is how I'm going to raise my children. I'm going to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're going to know that these are God's expectations of your life. God expects you to trust and obey. He expects you to look to him by faith and to follow his commandments in love for him because he loved you and gave himself for you. Right? All of this is tied to that. But it's a general culture in the household. Like Culture is like your norms, the things you do without thinking about it, the, the basic expectations that are all around you. In your household, there is this culture of the nurture and admonition, the d- discipline and instruction, the trusting and obeying of the Lord. Like, this is just what we do. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. It's just normal. Jeff? Fathers do not provoke your children. And I, I've got a couple thoughts on that, but, but what just struck me was fathers do not provoke your children to anger. Anger against who? Mm-hmm. Against God? Mm-hmm. So think about that. Within the marriage, the husband represents Christ. The wife represents the church. But within the household, the husband represents the father. He's a father and he's a representation of our father God to his children. Right? Your kids should know what God is like by looking at you. And when God describes himself to Moses, he says, I am a God, merciful and gracious abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. Well, you, you, tend, you can go to Walmart and see two things very quickly. That people tend to fall off the horse on one side or the other. They are either overly passive and they do not parent their children at all, or they are overly aggressive and they are mean and angry and or helicopter parents or whatever you want to call it, and they're yelling at their children all the time. And so either one of those is not good. Right? Because what tends to happen is people utterly rebel and run away or they crumble under the pressure and they both tend to have the same effect. But if we're after true obedience in the Lord, that happens ultimately because of the gospel. Right? So as you instruct and guide, you always do it with the gospel and grace in mind. Right? So we obey the law because of the gospel. The law shows us our need for the gospel, and then the gospel leads us to delight in the law. Right? We, we, we do what David does. So law, gospel, law. And again, sometimes you're not feeling very gospel that day, but you still got to obey the law. But what you're after is a heart that so delights in the Lord that it wants to obey. So if you take a steel rod and you try to bend it just as it is, 
it's either going to snap back the way it was or it's going to break under the pressure. You've got to apply heat if you really want it to bend. Right? Well, that heat is the gospel. Right? And we and our children are the rod. Right? You, so you come and you apply the gospel in such a way that you see be, uh, not behavior modification under the law, but gospel transformation that then leads to, to true, true God-honoring behavior. Right? So if you're, if you're just, look, I'm the Lord of this house, you do what I say... You're provoking him to anger or provoking them the bitterness to the Lord. Or if you're overly passive and you never discipline, right? It's the same risk. But if you, if you balance that law and gospel approach, if you balance it with mercy and grace and genuine expectation of this is what right is. And in this house, we live this way. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. This is a covenant household and you will honor God. And part of the way you honor God is by honoring me and your mother and so on and so forth, right? So I, I am generally more passive and, you know, I'm the good cop in the scenario, Rachel always says. But there are some things that I intentionally put the fear of God in my children about. And one of them is when they disrespect their mother, right? And, and I just, you know, and just, I've had numerous, you know, like come to Jesus moments with my kids where I try to do that. Now she would say, I'm still too nice and I haven't done it near as near enough probably, but, but I've done it. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm kind of more overly gracious, but this is what's good about Rachel and I, because Rachel's law and I'm gospel and we, <laughs> we work well together, but <laughs> but what I do often though, is, you know, Rachel is like, I don't care what you feel like, I said do it. You know, and I'm like, now here's, I want you to want to do it. So let, 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 me, let me help you understand, right? Let's have a reminder that I'm with 40 children. No. In God's providence, there's a very good, there's a very good and real reason why we're married, right? We balance each other out. But I think that's part of the problem is you have unbalanced approaches, which on either side can lead your children to be angry with you. And then you are a direct representative of God to them. And so they're going to be angry with God as well. Right? So. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, and and that's you know those those things change. So the rod represents discipline. When they're younger, like we didn't have a rod, we had a a paddle that looked like a fence post that Eli made us. And uh, it was effective. It was very effective. But as they got older, I went from not having to use it to just smacking it on the counter. And that was enough to, like, get everything in line. And then, you know, they get older and then discipline looks different. You know, then it turns into, you know, sorry, give me your car keys or whatever, right? That, that, that type of thing. Um, I'm not going to smack my 18-year-old so, son with a paddle. Sometimes I might want to, but I, I'm just, it's, not, it's not the same discipline approach. Yeah, you're not scaring him anymore. 
But so discipline changes, but that same approach, right? You don't want to be a legalist and you don't want to be an antinomian, which is just no law. You, you want to be obedient to the Lord, which happens genuinely from a heart that's been gripped by grace. But you have to show them obedience matters in every area of life, no matter how you feel, right? And so that, in part, a big part of how that's going to happen is that the whole culture of your household is that idea of Joshua, right? That as for me and my household, we serve the Lord. It's just what we do. It's our norm. We worship him. We love him. We follow him. We submit to his law here. That's what we do. He shapes the norms of our life. He shapes the rules and the patterns of our life. It's not merely what we want to do or what we feel like doing. It's what he's called us to do. And he's called us to take every thought captive to obey Christ, to obey Jesus joyfully in every area of life. And so this is how this this ministry of health, education, and welfare unfolds, right? This is education, but it's an education that is this discipline and instruction of the Lord is tied to every area of life, right? So this, this isn't merely devotional time. This is you glorify God whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, right? You are going to be a Christian whatever, right? If you're going to go to school to be an architect, an engineer, or a, a hairstylist, or I don't care what it is, you're going to do what you do as a Christian, because that's your culture. That's how you operate. You do it in submission to the Lordship of Christ. And you do it for the glory of Christ. Right? So this, this is tied to bringing this spear of life under the Lordship of Christ. That's why we're meant to raise our children that way. Because God deserves the glory of their life. He deserves the glory of our family. And He deserves the glory of this world. And our children are going to go out into the world... And be the next whatevers, right? Presidents, governors, engineers, you name it, right? And so we're trying to lead them in the way they should go. That's going to lead to physical blessing and spiritual blessing. And it's going to magnify the glory of the Lord. So we got to cut it off. But as we continue through this series on Sunday morning, keep this in mind that there are these covenant Areas of life, family, church, civil governments, and they all have representatives. And that's how God works with his own people, right? He has covenants with representatives that are standing in the gap for a a greater household or people underneath them. That's what Adam did. That's what Noah did. That's what Abraham does. And we'll see that go on down the line all the way to Christ. But. We are meant to obey God in every sphere of life. Because as I said, as Kuiper said, Christ looks at everything and says, it's mine. And so we're meant to submit it to him.